If you would, would you open your Bibles with me to the book of Zechariah? Last week, we opened up the longest of the minor prophets, so the longest of the short ones. And we went through the background material and that opening introductory sermon in the first six verses or so that lays the foundation for everything that's going to come before. Uh, Zechariah makes some very pointed and particular promises to the people of Israel. He calls them back to repentance. Uh, they are a people that have heard that they're supposed to rebuild the temple from Haggai, and they are, and they should, and they start. They've moved toward obedience, uh, but through Zechariah, God is going to remind them that the heart is always central to what they're doing, that there's no such thing as external obedience that is worthy of God's praise, that is worthy of God's blessing, that their heart is what has to drive their obedience. And then through the rest of the book, he's going to unfold how that obedience will work itself out into blessing over time. See, the physical restoration of Israel does not happen apart from the spiritual restoration of Israel. And so Zechariah is going to open up those wonderful themes through the next 14 chapters. And today we're going to come to the first uh, of the visions that he has. My notes say the first, two vis- the first three visions, that lasted until about Tuesday. We're going to get further through the first two today. And what these visions are over the next several chapters is they are prophetic pictures of what God is going to do. Uh, They are vivid, graphic illustrations of how God is working among his people at that time and how he will work among his people all the way up until the end of the ages. So if you're not there already, find your way to Zechariah chapter 1. I'm going to begin reading in chapter 1, verse 7, and we're going to start to move through where we're going to go today. Zechariah chapter 1, beginning in verse 7, this is what God's word says. On the 24th day of the 11th month, which is the month of Shabbat, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, son of Edo, saying, I saw in the night, and behold, a man riding on a red horse. He was standing among the myrtle trees in the glen, and behind him were red, sorrel, and white horses. And I said, What are these, my Lord? The angel who talked with me said, I'll show you what they are. So the man who was standing among the myrtle trees answered, These are they whom the Lord has sent to patrol the earth. And they answered the angel of the Lord who was standing among the myrtle trees and said, We have patrolled the earth, and behold, all the earth remains at rest. And then the angel of the Lord said, O Lord of hosts, how long will you have no mercy on Jerusalem and the cities of Judah against which you have been angry these 70 years? And the Lord answered gracious and comforting words to the angel who talked with me. Let's pray. Lord, as we open up these visions, we recognize that there's difficulty. There are some things that are clear. There are some things that are not. There are some things that cause division, uh, even among brothers and sisters in Christ. Lord, I pray uh, that you would give us humility and clarity as we look through these things. I pray that you would open our eyes so that we might behold wonderful things from your word. Lord, guard us from uh, the pride that is sometimes attached to specifically prophetic understandings. Uh, Guard us from uh, the hardness of heart that says uh, that we cannot humbly think through these things. Remind us of the central truth, that you have a plan not only for your people but for all of mankind, and that nothing that happens, not one day, not one minute, not in one place on this earth, falls outside of your good, loving, sovereign control. Lord, that you are moving history toward an ultimate climax that brings honor and glory to your name. And so, Lord, we anticipate what will come with hope and faith and courage and perseverance because nothing thwarts your sovereign will. I praise you for that fact. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. 
All right, so as we come to these opening visions, I want to remind you that these are not things that are left in our Bible strictly to confuse us. God does not plant things in here to say, ha ha, foolish mortals, you can't possibly know what I'm thinking. No, he, he gives us these things so that we might know, so that we might understand, which means that as we come to these, uh, what we need is not good imaginations. Uh, what we need is not necessarily creative thought to try and piece together what God means. What we need is humility that seeks to understand the text uh, based on faithful interpretation and to humbly submit to what God's Word says and to have genuine faith that God intends these things to be meaningful to us. That if every word of Scripture is inspired, that therefore every word of Scripture is also profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, for training in righteousness. And that includes uh, the crispy pages. It includes uh, the prophetic passages. It includes those things that are hard for us sometimes uh, to wrestle with. And I want to remind us also of what those major themes of Zechariah are because they matter. Yes, he writes to call the people back to heartfelt uh, repentance and obedience. But he is also going to drive some major themes all the way through, the, through this book. One of those is the Messiah. He is going to talk at great length about the one who will deliver his people. And he's going to talk at great length about what it looks like when he restores his people. He talks a lot about the king and the kingdom, and that's familiar themes from Matthew, but that's all grounded here in the prophets. So uh, it takes the people that Zechariah is writing to, and it moves them from the humble circumstances that they're in, recognizing uh, not only the failure of the past, but really the difficulty of their present. And it moves from their current history all the way through to the glorious future that God has for his people. So today we're going to look at the first two of those visions. Um, and before we look at those visions in particular... Verse 7 says that on the 24th day of the 11th month, which is the month of Shabbat and the second year of Darius, we need to understand we fast-forwarded in time a little bit. Remember, the first uh, word that we had in that opening sermon came in kind of October, November of that year 520. Well, now we're in late February of the following year. And the visions that he is going to have now, the next eight visions that he has, all happen in one night. These come one after the other, which means they build off of each other. There's no way that I can cover all eight visions in one sermon. That shouldn't surprise any of you. But remember that as we go through these next couple of weeks, these aren't isolated events that are months and months apart. They are meant to be seen as progression. They are meant to be seen with one another. They tie into one another. They build off of one another. And that's something that I don't want to lose, even though we only meet together like this for about an hour a week. Uh, these all need to stay together. Because the next time marker that we have is in the opening verse of chapter 7. So, uh, these images that we have today, in particular these first two. The first one is going to be an image of horsemen, a vision of various horsemen that we'll work through. And the second one uh, is going to be horns. And we'll look at that when we get there. And uh, as we go through these visions, they kind of unfold in different parts. And uh, they unfold in either two or three parts, depending on the vision. The first thing is going to be uh, the illustration, the picture that we're given. So we'll look at the image that Zechariah sees. We'll make sure that we understand what he is actually seeing. We won't interpret it right away, but we want to make sure that we understand what the words tell us he's seeing, at least to the best of our ability, because some of those things might not be familiar. Uh, then we'll deal, move from the uh, illustration to the explanation. We'll make sense of the pieces and the parts, and we'll figure out the whys behind those things to the best of our ability. And then some of the visions, about half of them, come with what we're going to call the exclamation, because it sounds like it fits there. But it's this kind of this cry out, this last message tacked on to the end of it. 
that explains, that furthers, that, uh, that kind of highlights the themes of the vision. Like I said, that's not in all of them. It's in about half of them. So our first vision today has all three of those parts, illustration, explanation, and exclamation. So let's open with the illustration of the horseman in verse 8. I saw in the night, and behold, a man riding on a red horse. He was standing among the myrtle trees in the glen, and behind him were red sorrel and white horses. And then I said, what are these, my lord? The angel who talked with me said to me, I will show you what they are. So the man who was standing among the myrtle trees answered, These are they whom the Lord has sent to patrol the earth. And they answered the angel of the Lord who was standing among the myrtle trees and said, We have patrolled the earth, and behold, all the earth remains at rest. And we'll stop there for a minute because there's enough to unpack there. Several figures that we have here. First, uh, there's a man who is going to be kind of the central figure to this whole thing. Uh, In verse 8, he is the man who is riding on a red horse standing among the myrtle trees. Uh, So there's a central rider on a horse that is red-colored standing among myrtle trees, and lots of us don't know what a myrtle tree is. This next slide has what a myrtle tree is. It's not a giant kind of uh, hugely imposing tree. It's a low-growing evergreen tree. And in particular, this says that this is a myrtle tree or a grove of myrtle trees growing in a glen or in a low place. And behind that first rider is a group of riders on other horses, Some are red, some are sorrel or kind of reddish brown, and some are white. And when Zechariah asks who they are, he's given the answer that these are the ones that the Lord has sent to patrol the earth. When we want to send patrols out, those of you that serve in our military, some of you did long-range reconnaissance patrols, like Don. We would send groups of men out to find intelligence. Now we have satellites and drones that do a number of those things. Understand that in the ancient Near East, none of that technology existed. Patrols of riders would go out. And it was the fastest way to gather information and to send information over incredibly large distances that these ancient empires covered. So when the people hear about a patrol that has gone out, they understand what that means. When Zechariah hears that this is a patrol, he understands what it means. It is a group of riders who have been extended for a particular purpose to gather and to receive information and to bring that back and make a report. It would have been a very, very common thing for them. And so the riders, they bring their report back to that central figure, and then that central figure says, O Lord of hosts, how long will you have no mercy on Jerusalem and the cities of Judah against which you have been angry these 70 years. So those are the central visual components. Zechariah is being talked to by someone, and he is seeing another group. A central rider on a red horse, other riders behind him among a grove of myrtle trees, and this group of riders is a patrol that has gone out over all the earth. So that much I just want us to have kind of clear. So once we see and kind of understand the illustration and the picture that he's seen, now we can move on to the explanation and figure out what it does mean. And the first important piece to understand is who that central figure is. And this is really uh, probably the most difficult piece of this to wrestle with. In verse 8, he's called a man riding on a red horse, standing among the myrtle trees. In verse 10, he's the one who answers and says, they are the ones that the Lord has sent to patrol the earth. And then in verse 11, it says, they, that is that patrol, answered the angel of the Lord who was standing among the myrtle trees. So if you don't put those verses together, you miss the fact that the the one who is there on the red horse among the myrtle trees is called the angel of the Lord or the angel of Yahweh. And this one appears to be the one that they 
not only make the report to, but the one who oversees this patrol. And that makes some tension because if Yahweh, if the Lord is the one that sent them out, then who is this angel of Yahweh that they are reporting to? And it's difficult for us a little bit because when we hear the word angel, we automatically think of created spiritual being who does the work and the will of the Lord. But we think of angels as those created beings that are either fallen, like Satan and his demons, or who are obedient angels, but they, they do ministry and work on behalf of the Lord. And that is true, but understand that the word angel doesn't automatically mean that created being. The word angel means messenger, which fits because those spiritual beings created by the Lord often act as his messengers. That is an appropriate title for them. But when we talk about the angel of the Lord, there's something distinct about the angel of the Lord. And in particular, uh, we have to understand that this isn't the first time that the angel of the Lord appears in our Bible. I want you to turn with me quickly back to Genesis chapter 16. Genesis chapter 16. And while you're turning there, let me give you a little bit of the backstory to Genesis 16. In Genesis 12, God calls to a man named Abram, who we will later know as Abraham, and he makes him some remarkable promises. He says, get up, go from your father's land, from your father's house, and I will show you where to go. And I'm going to give you amazing things. He promises Abraham land and seed and blessing. And Abraham believes. Abraham trusts that the God who promised those things is faithful to deliver those things. Uh, And then Abraham waits. And for 10 years, there doesn't seem to be much happening on the seed front. He can see various pieces of blessing in his life. He doesn't own any of the land. But if God promised him a seed, Abraham is getting up there and there is no seed. And so Abraham and his wife Sarah come together and they decide that maybe God needs some help which is never a good idea. But they come up with what we'll call the Hagar plan. And the Hagar plan is to go ahead and have Abraham take Hagar, Sarah's servant, and to have a child with her. And then Sarah will raise that child as her own. And perhaps that's the child of promise that God needed to kind of kickstart these covenant promises and blessings. And as you can imagine, that goes terribly from the very beginning. Hagar does get pregnant, and immediately she hates Sarah, and Sarah hates her, and there's great tension. And so Hagar runs away. And that brings us to where we are in Genesis chapter 16 and verse 7. Hagar runs away from Sarah, and verse 7, the angel of the Lord found her, angel of the Lord, the same figure in Zechariah, found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarah, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. And the angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You will call his name Ishmael because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He will be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him, and he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. And that's interesting, but it's also interesting because the angel of the Lord says, I will multiply your offspring. There is no angel that has the ability to multiply anyone's offspring. And look at Hagar's recognition, verse 13. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, you are a God of seeing or the God who sees. For she said, truly, here I have seen him who looks after me. Hagar recognizes that this is not simply an angel, a messenger, but this is the Lord himself. 
and we absolutely don't have time to get to it, but this same angel of the Lord appears to Abraham, Jacob, Moses, Gideon, Samson's parents, and judges, and every time the angel of the Lord shows up, he is distinct from every other angelic being that we see in Scripture. He bears the name of Yahweh himself. He appears to act with the authority of Yahweh himself. He receives worship that would only be appropriate to God. I mean, you think through Revelation when John sees those remarkable pictures about what's coming in the future. And in Revelation 19, he falls at the feet of an angel to worship him. The angel says, what are you doing? Stop. Don't do that. Get up. Don't worship me. I'm a servant just like you. Worship God. This angel accepts the worship of people. That is entirely inappropriate for a created being. So who then is the angel of Yahweh or the angel of the Lord? Uh, I think that the best answer is that he is a pre-incarnate manifestation of the second person of the Trinity. It's a pre-incarnate Christ. I think this is one of those reasons that on the road to Emmaus, Jesus opens the eyes of those disciples. And he doesn't begin with Matthew's version of things. He begins on the Law and the Prophets, and he says, here I am. I'm all the way through. So the angel of the Lord is distinct. And I think the angel of the Lord is equated with Yahweh himself. How does that happen? The only answer is through the Trinity, through the Son, who is distinct from, but divine like the Father. But what about the other parts of the vision? That angel of the Lord is among myrtle trees growing in a low place. Trees are frequently used to picture various people during the Bible. And most commentators, and I would tend to agree, see the myrtle tree as Israel. An evergreen, a hardy thing, difficult to kill, but not particularly imposing. Growing in a low place. And remember, at this time, Jerusalem and Israel have been brought very, very low. They are at an incredibly humble place. There's another angel who's mentioned as speaking directly with Zechariah, and over the next several chapters, uh, this angel appears to be given to him to help him explain, to help him understand things. So he's kind of an explaining or an interpreting angel. He helps Zechariah understand, not the angel of the Lord, but an angel who assists him in understanding. And this patrol is those other angelic messengers that have gone out to bring the report of what is happening on the earth. And aside from the pieces, let's also understand the explanation of what's happening. Uh, because if we get kind of divorced from the particular cultural setting that we're in, we can start to get really weird on the interpretation. A number of people see this as the nations of the earth being at rest, and they try to make that even now. Remember that this is given to a people at a place in a time, and it matters. When those writers report that all the earth is at rest, that the nations of the earth are at rest, understand that for the first time in a long time, that's actually true when they report this. After Cyrus conquers Babylon, it's relatively peaceful under his reign, but when Cyrus dies, there is a tremendous upheaval over the Medo-Persian Empire. Uprisings and revolts and rebellions, and it's not until really right about this time, about the second year of Darius, that those are put down. And so for the first time in a long time, there is actually peace and security, and the empire would say, we are at peace and at rest. If you try to remove this from that, you, start to, you have to make connections that aren't there. He's talking to a very particular people. So the nations are at peace, and we might think that's good news, but it's not. Because those nations are at rest while Israel is pictured in poverty. And if we remember where we're at, God has made some very particular promises, hasn't he? All throughout the minor prophets, what has he said? I am going to deal with the sins of the nations. 
Two months before this, what did Haggai said to Zerubbabel? I am going to shake the nations. If God's going to shake the nations, why are they at peace or at rest? Why is the empire built up but Jerusalem beaten down? Well, we have to understand that God dealt with Israel as he did for a particular period of time. That's why the angel of the Lord, when he cries out, says, How long are you going to have no mercy on Jerusalem and the cities of Judah against which you have been angry these 70 years? The angel of Yahweh, as the Lord, can address the Lord in the same way that the Son prayed to and addressed and spoke with the Father. But why does he say that? Because Israel was disciplined, not for an indefinite period of time, but for a prophetically given period of time. If we were to read through the prophet Jeremiah, Jeremiah said that the people would be exiled for 70 years. Not a mystical 70 years, not an allegorical 70 years, uh, not a spiritual 70 years, but a period of 70 years. And guess what? The 70 years is just about up. And so as the nations are at rest and Jerusalem is still appearing to be under the hand of discipline, the right question is, when is this going to be lifted? God does what he said he would do to the people he said he would do it to for the time that he said he would do it in. And now that time is up and that's an apparent problem. Because now we're anticipating not discipline but restoration. And that brings us to the exclamation. Uh, This first vision has, has the picture It has the explanation, and now it has this bit that is tacked onto the end that is kind of this exclamation, this proclamation that he's supposed to give, because that question that is given by the the angel of the Lord has an answer. The Lord answered gracious and comforting words to the angel who talked with me, and look at the exclamation that comes next. It says, so the angel who talked with me said, cry out, thus says the Lord of hosts. I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion. I'm exceedingly angry with the nations that are at ease. For while I was angry but a little, they furthered the disaster. And let's stop there for a minute. That angel that's standing with Zechariah, distinct and separate from the angel of the Lord, now speaks to him again. And he says, on the one hand, God is exceedingly jealous for his city and his people. Isn't jealousy a sin? Jealousy is only a sin when you desire what rightfully belongs to someone else. God is not rightly, God is not desiring what belongs to someone else. God is displaying his consuming affection for the people and the place that he has chosen. He is jealous for what does rightly belong to him. He has set his affection on Jerusalem and on Zion. And this statement reminds the prophet and the people that that hasn't changed. That through those 70 years of discipline, God didn't grow cold in his affection for his people. He still has this burning desire for them. And once again, he's talking about an actual place. There's no way to stay consistent with the context and make Jerusalem, the cities of Judah... Zion, anything other than exactly what the people would anticipate they are. God is saying that he still has a great desire for these people and for this place. But although he kind of has this jealousy for his people, this exceeding jealousy, the other side of that is that he is exceedingly angry with the nations that are at ease. Those physical nations that he received a report about, he is 
angry with him. Although they appear to be at ease, they're the source and the object of his wrath. Uh, Because while he was angry but a little, not a little bit angry. We've already seen in Zechariah that he was greatly angry with their father. The idea is he was angry but a little for a period. His anger was bound up. His anger was bound in its scope. He was not going to discipline the people to destroy them. His anger was bound by time. He was going to discipline them for 70 years. But what he intended and what he called for, for a duration and for a scope and for a time, the nations wanted to bring to its logical conclusion, and that is to destroy the people. God used Babylon just like he used Assyria to judge the north and to judge the south. But their heart was to destroy God's people, and so God is exceedingly angry with them, not for being used by him, but for pouring out their hatred on his people. They took the disaster that God had promised, and they wanted to bring it all the way to complete destruction. And so God reiterates what he's told the prophets many times before and that we've read, and it's that he will judge the nations that he has used as the instruments of Israel's discipline. And then look at what he promises. Therefore, verse 16, thus says the Lord, I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy. My house shall be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts, and the measuring line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. Cry out again, says the Lord of hosts. My city shall again overflow with prosperity, and the Lord will again comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. What the nations intended to destroy, God intends to rescue. He speaks about his house that will be rebuilt. That's another designation for the temple, the house of God, the house of the Lord. He says the measuring line will be stretched out over Jerusalem, meaning that the city itself will also be rebuilt. And once again, it matters that we see that he's talking about a real city and a real temple because these people need real comfort for real right now. Remember, they had been called to rebuild the temple. It had a foundation, it had an altar, and that was it. And they are in the process of rebuilding it. And as they are rebuilding it, they are experiencing the hatred and the pushback and the antagonism of the neighbors around them. And Haggai said what? Be strong. Be strong, be strong, be strong, and obey. Why? Because the Lord is with you. This vision simply takes what Haggai said and provides a vision behind that. This is further proof that God is going to strengthen his people to do exactly what he called them to do and that he is with them. That's the picture. The rider is among the myrtle trees. God is among his people. He's not ignorant about what's going on in the nations around them. He's not ignorant to the hostility. He knows what is happening in his world and among his people. And he says, you are going to do what I have called you to do because that's the way that I have decreed that it will happen. The nations are at ease. Jerusalem is destitute. But God has decreed that the work will be done. And then he does look forward that his cities will again overflow with prosperity. The Lord will again comfort Zion, will again choose Jerusalem. He's speaking of the fact that this present state of humility isn't the final state. We have to understand that because if these visions all occur one after the other, then that's exactly the promise that they build on. And with that, we come to the second vision. And in some ways, the images are a little bit less familiar, but the vision itself is much more compact. It's much more uh, manageable as far as its theme. And this time, the vision centers around four horns. Like the last time, it opens with an illustration, a picture of what it looks like, and then it follows with an exclamation, but this second, or an explanation, but this second vision doesn't have kind of an exclamation. It doesn't have a a, a statement that runs along the end of it. So it's just two pieces, the illustration and the explanation. So let's look at the illustration that he's given. 
Remember, same night. So immediately after that first vision, this is what comes up, starting in verse 18. Zechariah says, And I lifted my eyes, and I saw, and behold, four horns. And I said to the angel who talked with me, What are these? And he said to me, These are the horns that have scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. Then the Lord showed me four craftsmen. And I said, What are these coming to do? And he said, These are the horns that scattered Judah, so that no one raised his head. And these have come to terrify them, to cast down the horns of the nations who lifted up their horns against the land of Judah to scatter it. A couple of things we need to make sure we understand about what he sees. And the first element is obviously those four horns. And so uh, you can see on the picture behind me a couple of different ways to interpret this. Those horns might be attached to an animal. That goat looks like a demon goat to me, but that's right. With the way God set their irises, they all kind of look like demon goats, but you throw an extra set of horns on there. A little bit scary. Uh, they're, not a, they're not necessarily said to be attached to an animal. Perhaps he just saw the four horns. Uh, either way, he sees this vision of four horns. Why horns? I, I don't want to skip too far down to the explanation, but we need to understand uh, that biblically by this time, horns are well understood as referring to the power or the might or the strength of a people or a nation. We read out of Psalm 75 today. We talked about the horns being lifted up, Uh, of the wicked and the righteous, right? The horns of the wicked being shattered, the horns of the righteous being lifted up. The idea of the the might or the strength of a people. By this time, the people have Daniel's prophecy. Daniel that speaks of specific beasts. Daniel that talks about beasts with horns, horns that represent rulers. Rulers, one in particular who boasts terrible, great, powerful things that God undoes. So understand that he sees horns They are the symbol and the sign of strength. Revelation picks up on that, but we certainly can't get there today. And in addition to the four horsemen, the Lord gives Zechariah, in addition to the the four horns, God gives Zechariah a vision of four craftsmen. And that's a really good translation of a potentially difficult word. If you are uh, steadfastly clinging to your King James Version, you'll see carpenters in there. Uh, This is the word for, for craftsmen, for a skilled worker. Uh, some translation of smiths in there, and that, that's appropriate. It, it is a skilled worker, somebody who can carry out a particular task, and these craftsmen come to deal with the horns. And that brings us kind of to the explanation of the vision. We don't have to wonder, we don't have to imagine what they could be. Uh, Zechariah sees four horns, and immediately he asks the angel what they are. He sees four horns, what are these? And the angel says to me, these are the horns that have scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. And again, it's very important to understand. He is not referring to a general people or a spiritual people. A number of commentaries talk about this as the scattered or persecuted church. I have great affection for a number of people who hold that position. Without being antagonistic, understand that there is no place in the New Testament for a trifold division of the church. We don't see any indication that the church is ever called things like Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. That kind of dividing of one people does not make sense. It absolutely makes sense here. If these are nations who have scattered God's people, they were scattered at Israel, they were scattered as, as Judah, and Jerusalem is the central part of both of them. It consistently only makes sense if we're talking about the Jewish people. And that's what he's saying. These are the powers. These are the rulers. These are the authorities who have come up to scatter God's people. And there is some room for questioning what that means. Is this the scattering in the past? Is this the scattering of those four particular nations that Daniel mentions? 
Is this the scattering accomplished by Babylon and by Persia and by Greece and by Rome? Is this just the general picture of any nation, and consistently through history there have been many, that lifts up its might and its power and sets it against God's people? I think there's room for understanding those various things because they're faithful to that same interpretation. It still sees them as nations. It still sees Israel and Judah as God's people. It sees those horns as the nations that have come against them. Whatever they are, these are the people who have, through all of their earthly power, set themselves against God's people and tried to destroy them. And then he sees those craftsmen, and he says, what are these coming to do? Not what are these. He recognizes them as craftsmen, but he says, what have they come to do? And the angel reiterates, these are the horns that scattered Judah so that no one raised his head. These are the people that brought Judah, God's people, low. And these, these craftsmen, have come to terrify them to cast down the horns of the nations who lifted up their horns against the land of Judah to scatter it. These are the ones that scatter the scatterers. These are the ones that shatter the shatterers. These are the ones that bring down the ones who sought to bring God's people down. Which is interesting because if it is Babylon and Persia and Greece and Rome, then the one that acted like a horn also acts like a craftsman because Persia overcomes Babylon, Greece overcomes Persia, Rome overcomes Greece, and that leaves the Messiah as the one who will ultimately overcome the last kingdom. If it's just a broad picture of nations that raise themselves up against God's people, then it's simply the constant reminder that God raises up people who will sustain and defend and overcome those who uh, seek to overcome his people. While there are those that set themselves against Israel who are intent on Israel's destruction, God guarantees their future. See, the first vision made it very, very clear that the nations are at ease even as Israel is made low. And that vision made it clear that the Lord is angry with the nations and will deal with them. The second vision is a broad look at that same promise. That although there are those who would seek to destroy God's people, none of them will succeed. Which, by the way, is what we would expect if God meant what he said in Jeremiah when he said, uh, you know, if you can stop the seasons, then Israel ceases to be a nation. If you can turn off the sun, then they'll cease to be a nation. God, God has a lasting plan for these people. Now, they have powerful and dangerous enemies, that's true. But this vision's a reminder that Israel doesn't depend on our own strength for survival. It is not that Israel overcomes the horns. It is that God raises up at the appropriate time and in the appropriate way ones who will subdue the ones who have subdued his people. That God alone ensures the survival of his chosen people. And that's where we'll close for today. Pictures, promises, and patience. I mentioned Abraham when we talked about the angel of the Lord. 75 years old when God first gave him those remarkable promises, land, seed, and blessing. And Genesis 15 makes it clear that Abraham believed God, that it was counted to him as righteousness. What a wonderful thing. Abraham believes God and he waits. And he waits. And he waits. And we don't always put together the fact that it was 25 years. 25 years before the promise of a child until he actually got to hold Isaac in his hand. And we can shake our head at Abraham for the Hagar plan and say, 
You had to know that was going to happen. But he did wait 10 years. Most of us can't wait for lunch. You know who you are. When God makes promises, it is often difficult for us to see how his timetable could be anything close to good because our perspective is so very limited. But what about us? We know that God is faithful, but if these visions are specific to Israel, then what are we supposed to do? It's tempting to try and find our way back into the text to put ourselves there uh, to become Israel in some larger sense so that we can obtain these promises. We, We don't need to do that. I think the best thing for you and I to remember as we walk out of here today is that we serve the same God. It is not a different God who made promises to Israel than has made promises to the church. That same remarkable, loving, covenant-keeping God has made promises to us, promises to sustain us, promises to defend us, promises to provide for us, promises to come again. And we're waiting. For 2,000 years, the church has been waiting for her Savior to return. And there's some days when that promise seems a long way away. And yet, God is not slow, as some count slowness. But what does Peter say? He's patient. He's not slow, he's not forgetful, he's patient, because he's not willing that any should perish. What is he waiting for? For the last one. He will not lose one of the people that the Father has promised as his eternal inheritance. What a remarkable thing. And so we don't wait on a slow, forgetful God. We wait patiently and hopefully, full of faith and full of confidence, knowing that because that same God who has always proven faithful to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to David, to Israel, will be perfectly faithful to us. So what do we do with that? First of all, we remind ourselves that he is the God who sees. That was true with Hagar, that was true with Israel, and that is true with us. I have no idea what your week has held. I have no idea what your week will hold in front of you. But there are times when it seems hard to believe that God is aware of what's going on. Because if he was, how could it possibly hurt this bad? He is the God who sees. Whether that was seeing Hagar in her fleeing, whether that was the patrol among the nations where God knew every detail of what was going on in the whole earth, the deepest, darkest recesses of the pain in your life, he is the God who sees. You do not suffer, struggle, or survive alone. You don't labor in darkness. God is there. Second, he is the God who saves. Uh, The horns come up, but God defends his people. And we might not be Israel, but we are a church that often thinks we have to provide for our own defense. That somehow... We have to fight the culture, fight the legislature, fight whatever battle we think we're in to preserve this thing that God says that he bore, that he brought into existence, and that he will sustain. That's what he says in Matthew 16, isn't it? I will build my church, and the gates of hell won't prevail against it. Something tells me that the God who created the heavens does not need us to sustain this thing. He has given us work to do. He's given us faithful callings to be obedient to. But we survive on his good pleasure and under his sovereign power. And ultimately, he is the God who saves. If our work 
was enough to sustain us, if our work was enough to save us, if our work was required to secure our eternity, what a wretched, miserable, failing existence we would live. He is the God who saves, not only who sustains, but who saves his people. And finally, he's the God who strengthens. God did not give these visions to terrify or to confuse. God gave these visions to strengthen and encourage his people. Not so that they would relax, but so they would be called to obey, to finish the temple, to build the walls, to be obedient to what he had called them to do. God has called us to be obedient as we wait. He has told us what he is going to do, not only with Israel, but through the nations and through the ages. And he has given us work to do in light of that. And so we wait with faith and hope and confidence, not just hug her down in a bunker waiting for the end of all things, but we preach the gospel no matter what the consequences are because we know the end story. We know the outcome. We know the king is coming, and so we can be faithful and strong and persevere under whatever difficulties we have because we know that he strengthens us with these things, not only with his promises, but he's given us his spirit so that we might be obedient. And we cower under our circumstances when we should move forward with confident obedience because he has given us everything we need for life and godliness. And if that is the case, then the God who, survive, who strengthens us will be the God who allows us to bear good fruit until he comes. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for these visions, these pictures that you gave your prophet that talk of your faithfulness to your people. Thank you for the fact that they were left for us so that we might remember the faithful God. Lord, at the right time, you sent the Messiah into the world to die for our sins. At the right time, he will come again. Lord, we, we know that you're faithful even when we are not. When we are not. And so we ask that you would strengthen us so that we might be obedient. Lift our eyes, fix our perspective, take it off of uh, the frustration and the fear and the worry that is so often associated with this world, but that ultimately selfishly says, I'm responsible for providing for my needs. Lord, and lift our eyes to you, the creator and the sustainer, the one who gives us every good thing. I praise you and we thank you in Christ's name. Amen.